Well, good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Uh, words can't express how great it is to see you all, to be with you, to see your faces. Um, Petersons, thanks for sharing. Uh, ministered to me. Um, excited for our time today. Like Jordan said, I'm not Josh. My apologies. He's a 49ers fan. I'm a Seahawks fan. But I'll um, be praying for our brother as uh, he's not feeling well, and I know he really wanted to be here with us uh, together today. So today we're going to take a break from our Advent series in Revelation that has been great, but our text today that Jordan just read from Matthew 16 is going to serve like an appetizer for the next two messages that will close out the Revelation series in regards to Advent. So as we've heard today, and as the third candle was lit, this is the third week of Advent, and it's the week of joy. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the page or the screen in front of you. Have Matthew 16 in front of you. We're going to be focusing on verses 13 through 20. And as you make your way there, I want to ask you a question. I wonder what you're bringing with you to church today. Whether you're watching online or here in person, I wonder what you're bringing with you today, especially towards the end of a very difficult year. I know for me, I'm bringing tiredness today, and part of the reason why is because Carrie and I were in the emergency room on Friday night for Carrie struggling with kidney stones. So part of what you're going to hear today was written on my phone in the emergency room. So I'm bringing tiredness to you today. Maybe for you, you're bringing a sense of weariness or maybe fear or anxiety with you today. Maybe you're just worn down from it all, right? Maybe you're carrying a sense of discouragement or despair for you personally or for your family or those around you. And it's not lost on me that as we're going to dive into Matthew 16 today, that we're approaching the end of a very difficult year of 2020. But in our text today, we're going to see what's in between the first advent of Jesus coming and the second advent of him returning. And we're going to let God's word set the agenda for Gresham Bible Church as we move into the next year. And today, from Matthew 16, we're going to say, see what Jesus, the king, says about his church. And it holds a promise that's true no matter what year it is and no matter what you bring with you today. And the reality that we're going to explore together this morning gives you, the Christian, a joy and a vision that puts steel in your bones and joy in your heart. And so Gresham Bible Church, my prayer for our time together today is that we're going to come away with a renewed joy and a renewed hope that will melt away despair. So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father God, we need you. We need to hear from you today through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to treasure wonderful things from your word. Father, please, through the preaching of your word today, may you comfort and strengthen where needed. May you bring conviction where needed. And may your name be glorified. Lift our eyes from ourselves to you and increase our joy in trusting you. Open your word to us now and open us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, put your finger on God's word in front of you and look with me at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Here's where we're going today. Four points of emphasis. First is who. Second will be what. Third is where. 
and the fourth is when. So first, who? I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So before we jump into our text, let's just take two steps back and get a little bit of context so we have the full backstory of the book of Matthew so that brings us to this point in our story. And we really need to see where our text fits, again, in the context of Matthew and in the greater story arc of the Bible. And this is really important because that backdrop is going to tee up what the big idea is in our text today. So in summary, maybe you're already aware of this, but the book of Matthew is the King Jesus gospel. In Matthew, Jesus is fulfilling, ultimately fulfilling the story of Exodus from the Old Testament through promises fulfilled. For those of you who are sports fans, it's kind of like this. The long passes that were launched in the Old Testament about the promised Messiah, they're being caught or they land here in the book of Matthew. It's like Russell Wilson launching a deep moonshot pass, 50 yards, beautiful arc, and then it lands in the end zone for a touchdown. Right, Jake? All right. And so the ball leaving his hand in the Old Testament are the promises. They're being launched, but where are they going to land? The promises about the Savior King to come. Well, again, the ball travels beautiful 50 yards in the air, and then they're caught. And the receiver catching that ball is the book of Matthew, the ball of the promises of the coming king. So the story of Matthew is asking, will anyone see Jesus as the savior king of the Old Testament? And you start working through Matthew up to our text in Matthew 16. That's the question behind all the questions. Will the religious leaders see it? Will the disciples see it? Will the culture around see that Jesus is the promised king? So now that we have that context, let's jump into Matthew 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, who are people saying that I am, right? And then Peter confesses in verse 15, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So finally, the book of Matthew has been building up to this point. Finally, Peter says more clearly than ever who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the king the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter puts it all together here. In essence, what he's really saying is, I know who you are now, Jesus. You are Israel's long-promised king. You are the Messiah, and you are God himself. Peter answers the ultimate question, who is Jesus? The question each of us must consider, a question whose answer only determines everything for your life today and everything for your life in eternity. This reality of who Jesus is that Peter affirms brings us to verse 18 in our text, and that's where we're going to focus the remainder of our time on today is verse 18. So this brings us to the second point of emphasis, what? 
What is Jesus building? So look with me at verse 18, where Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So first, we see King Jesus is the one who is doing the building. As he says, I will build my church. So it's important we don't gloss over this. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible or you've grown up in church, you kind of read this, and it's kind of like water going through a pipe. From one end to the other, nothing sticks. You just kind of read over it. But what is Jesus really saying here about what he's building? Because if Jesus is the king that the Old Testament has been promising, and the book of Matthew proves he is, if Jesus is the king, we should make sure we're clear about what the king says that he's building. Because if a king is building something, it must be really important. It must be important about what he's building because it's going to show us who this king is, what he's like, and what his purposes are. So Gresham Bible Church, we're going to camp here in verse 18, and really let's lean into what King Jesus is saying here. So verse 18 is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used. The word translated here in front of you, it basically means assembly. It means to gather. It means the called out ones, those that are called out for a purpose. And in Revelation 5.9, we see what kind of church Jesus is building. Revelation 5.9 says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. King Jesus is building his worldwide church made up of a diverse people from every tongue and nation and tribe. So in Matthew 16, it's the first use of the word, but then in the rest of the New Testament, it's just the church is just going to build momentum and snowball through the end of the New Testament. And we've been seeing it already in the first two messages Josh has shared with us from Revelation, right? So when we hear this church in the New Testament, it's important we're just clear on what it is. So there's the church universal made up of all believers, right? And think about that as the big C church, capital C. And then there's the local church that's an expression of the larger church. And think about that as small C church. And so remember, if the king's building something, we really want to know what he is building. We want to know what it is, what its distinctives are, and what its purposes are, how it works. And again, much could be said about what the church is, but I want to highlight three brief important truths about the church that here in Matthew 16, the ball's just kind of getting kicked down the hill. And I want us to just think about three truths and have them in our mind here about what the church is from the New Testament. First, God's Word. Jesus is building his church, and he's doing it by the power of his word. The church is formed and cultivated by being word-based and a word-loving people. The word created at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1, and the word forms and builds God's people as the church. The church is to read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, and see the word through baptism and communion. 
when we gather as Gresham Bible Church, we should come expectantly to hear God's Word. So let me give you a quick homework assignment, maybe for some of you who are students and Christmas breaks coming up and you're going to be bored. Look in the New Testament and look for all the patterns of how God's Word is, is used and what it means for how it forms and cultivates the early church in the New Testament. So the church is to be shaped and nourished by God's Word. Jesus loves God's Word, and Jesus' church should too. So secondly, a distinctive about the church, the gospel. The church is to be gospel-centered. The church is about proclaiming good news and not just good advice for your best life now. The church is chiefly about who Jesus is and what he's done and then how you live your life in response to that. The church is to be about God's glory and not ours. The church is to never assume the gospel, but it's to treasure the gospel. The gospel should be at the forefront, not in the background. It's not to be assumed. So again, this is all over the New Testament. I know we're just doing a flyby, but Matthew 16 gets the ball rolling downhill about what the church is, so this is really important. The church is where the gospel advances in and through, and how churches are, are planted is because of the gospel. So two quick examples. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul is writing to the church, and he encourages them to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So the church's hope is not the latest church growth strategy. It's not the best marketing campaign. It's not about having a slick CEO type leader. It's not even about good circumstances. The church's hope is the gospel. We have God's word on that. One more example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we see the critical importance of the gospel being the engine and the fuel for the church. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2 says, Now I would, rem would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, in the church, we're to be reminded of the gospel, preached the gospel, receive the gospel, stand in the gospel, and being saved by the gospel. The church is to be about the gospel. So third thing about a distinctive about the church is we're just kind of taking Matthew 16 and getting a big picture overview. The third point of emphasis is church membership. You might be thinking, all right, Mike, I was tracking with you to this point. Really? Church membership? Why are you bringing that up? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. So in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says he's building his church. And so again, we want to make sure we know what the church is based on what God's word is, what the king says it should be. The principle and intent of church membership is that it helps a local church be what the New Testament describes a church is to be. Maybe you come here today and when you hear me say church membership, you have like this this baggage with you, maybe from a past experience or something you've heard or you've read, I'm, I'm asking you to kind of parking lot that and let's just go to what God's word has to say, okay? So in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, again, the book of Romans written to 
a particular church in Rome, Paul writes this in Romans 12:5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So when you think about the church, our Christian faith is personal, but it's never private. It's supposed to be a corporate thing. Churchless Christianity is not a biblical category or concept. The Christian's call is to live out the one another's of Scripture, right? And practicing meaningful church membership helps you as the individual Christian do that in the context of a particular local church with a particular family of Christians. I know many of your faces here. For those of you at home, you know my face. If I haven't met you yet, I'm excited and looking forward to meeting you. We're a family as Gresham Bible Church. We live out the gospel practically in context as a family, and church membership helps us do that. So church membership that is word-based and gospel-centered, it's good for you as the Christian, and it's good for the church. Church membership, really, it helps you live your life in God's story. So out of love, I'm going to press this point just a little bit more and ask you, how are you helping others at Gresham Bible Church follow Jesus? What does that look like for you? How have you in this last year in 2020, and how are you going to in 2021? And if you're not a member of Gresham Bible Church, I'd encourage you to consider and pursue that. Again, it's good for you, and it's good for this church. You need to be a part of a church where this is lived out. You need that as an individual believer. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need that. Your marriage needs it. Your kids need it. You need it. So this is the church, right? So bottom line, the church is God's idea, and he really cares about his church. At the end of the book of Matthew, just to kind of drive this point home about how important the church is, Jesus, right when he ascends, right before he ascends into heaven, he gives the great commission to go and make disciples of, of all the nations. Well, what did the first hearers of the great commission do with that? Did they come up with some really cool like strategy or marketing campaign? You know what they did? They started churches. That's how the gospel advanced with the first generation of Christians. And since that, that moment, that's how the gospel is advancing around the world. So I hope you see maybe just a little bit and may, that you hear and that you feel the implications in front of us here from Matthew 16, when Jesus says, I will build my church and what that word church is and what it means. There's implications for your life, Christian, and implications for the local church. King Jesus is building his church. Pastor and author Greg Gilbert says that once Peter confesses Jesus here in Matthew 16, once he confesses Jesus to be the king, let me quote, it's as if the go order is given from heaven. Jesus the king begins to act with royal authority, and the first thing he does is to establish his royal embassy on earth, his church. Jesus the King is on a rescue mission, and he builds his church with imperfect people like each of us who believe in his perfect work. 
All right, so in Matthew 16 so far, we've seen the who, King Jesus. We've seen the what, the church. Now let's consider the where in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Jesus says he will build his church on this rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what does Jesus mean by saying on this rock? And in order to help us answer that, I want you to look back with me, put your finger on the text, look back with me at the beginning of verse 13. Again, when we're in God's Word, we want to know the context. Where Matthew specifically notes where our passage happened, it's in the district of Caesarea Philippi. So it's tempting just to read verse 13 and get into our text and just kind of dismiss Caesarea Philippi. You don't know what that means. That's not like Seattle or a place you can wrap your mind around, so you just kind of dismiss it because it's not a place we're familiar with. But it's not by accident that Matthew puts that specifically in verse 13. He specifically calls out the location for verse 18. When we study God's Word again, we want to ask what the intent was to the original audience and then how that applies to us today. So in summary, little bit of background here. The district of Caesarea Philippi, it was built on a rock cliff. And I'm going to share this with you because it really helps us get what verse 18 is about. So it's built on this rock cliff. And in this area, there used to be a city that had a temple in it to the pagan god Pan. According to historians, the spot where Matthew 16 happens was the place of worship for this false god Pan and that was happening since the third century BC, so for a long time before we get to Matthew 16. So in this area, people worship this false god Pan, and they did it by casting goats and even children off of this rock cliff into a water spring that was in the mountain, in this rocky area. This area was considered to be the gates of the underworld, the gates to hell. So it was an area of generational idol worship. Matthew's telling us this in verse 13. However, this place had been renamed Caesarea Philippi, which is, again, what Matthew calls out specifically as our setting, and it was renamed by, remember the evil King Herod? We all know evil King Herod. Well, he had a son named Philip, who's bad news too. So Philip renames this area after the Roman emperor and himself because he's so humble. So that's the name, Caesarea Philippi, okay? So that's the name of this place. Author Russell Moore writes, the place represents both the forces of paganism and the political forces that literally crucified Jesus. So this is the place where Jesus takes his disciples in Matthew 16. Talk about a dramatic setting for the king to unveil his identity and his power, right? Are we kind of getting this a little bit? So what Jesus says here, it would have been so powerful and so vivid to the original audience, to his disciples, because they would have known the horrific history of this place. Matthew is specifically highlighting for the first audience, the original readers of this, that this is the place where Peter confesses who Jesus is. This is where Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. King Jesus announces he will build his church 
in the place where false worship had happened for generations, a place where false sacrifices were made to appease a false god, and a place where a human ruler and politician called for absolute devotion. This is where Jesus unveils who He is. What a better place. Can you think of a better place for King Jesus to arrive on the scene and to announce who He is and what He's here to do? This, this is awesome. Like, this is the best movie you could have ever seen, right? So Jesus here, He's planting His flag on this rock of false worship, on this rock of idol worship. King Jesus plants His flag The promise of Genesis 3 is beginning to come true here in Matthew 16. King Jesus is announcing, I'm here to crush the snake on this rock. Now, how does Jesus build on this rock? So have this backdrop in your mind. We want to get Matthew 16, right? He doesn't come to build here as a political king, but as a suffering servant. Consider the immediate context in Matthew 16. Just look a little bit further down the page. Right after our passage, King Jesus tells his disciples what he came to do. He came to die and to be raised again. And then King Jesus says all those that follow him are to take up their crosses too, to lose their life to really find it. For King Jesus, the cross comes before the crown. The same is true for his followers and for his church. So when Jesus said, on this rock, he also means he will build his church in and through his people. He built his church through Peter and the apostles, through their witness and the witness of the New Testament. Again, Matthew 16, it starts this of what the church is, and then it just reverberates from there. So two quick examples. Ephesians 2.20 says the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in our sermon last week that Josh preached in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, it says this about the new Jerusalem at the end of time. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it's astonishing that King Jesus, who plants his flag on this rock, He builds his church through imperfect people. In verse 13, just call to mind who Peter is here, right? He's a working-class fisherman. He's rough around the edges. He's really impulsive. This is who Jesus uses. Then as Jesus is nearing the cross, all of these disciples here who hear this message in Matthew 16, what do they do? They run for the hills right? They don't want to suffer persecution. They don't want to be identified with Jesus. And yet this is the rock Jesus builds his church on. This is a king whose ways are far above our ways. This isn't would be how any of us would build a kingdom. Jesus is greater than the rock of idolatry and the rock of political power. King Jesus is gracious to sinners and builds his church through broken people. Again, do you see what kind of king Jesus is? He's like nothing this world has to offer. Nothing you can conjure up or imagine will satisfy you like King Jesus will. For those that trust in Jesus, he removes your heart of stone, the book of Ezekiel says, and gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh. He takes your sinful heart that loves other things more than God 
a heart that is really an idol factory that makes even good things into God things. He takes that heart of stone and He forgives it. He helps you love Him more than you love other things, and then you experience life as it was really meant to be. When you come to Jesus by grace through faith, again, King Jesus gives you a new heart, right? One that's really forgiven and is really alive. King Jesus plants His flag on the heart of every Christian, just like He's doing here in Matthew 16. So maybe just a little bit, your eyes are being opened and your heart is beginning to be softened and maybe stirred to who Jesus really is, what Peter confesses here, and in light of that, who you really are. Maybe you're starting to feel how great and how sweet the gospel really is. It's not just a flannel graph in Sunday school. Or maybe, maybe in a hard year as we come to the end of it, maybe you haven't tasted how sweet the gospel is in a long time, if you're being really honest. And maybe the light of your love for King Jesus is flickering. So let me encourage you today from God's word in front of us. Advent shows us our need for Jesus. All we have to offer him is our need of him. And we all really need him. And he's a good king. So come to Jesus today and find rest for your weary heart. And listen to this quote by an old saint named Blaise Pascal. He's going to say the word incarnation in this quote, and by that means, that means the first advent, right? The babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, Jesus being fully man and fully God. So listen to this quote. The incarnation shows man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy required. Let me read that one more time because it's awesome. The incarnation shows man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy required. So if you're seeing here from Matthew 16, the greatness of the remedy of who King Jesus is and what he came to do, let me encourage you to trust in him. Lay down your idols, confess and repent, and turn to this great Savior who came to lay his life down and save sinners like us. The Jesus who came at the first advent as the lamb and the king and who is coming back in glory at the second advent. So this brings us to our last point today in verse 18 when. And I don't pronounce some words well. But when I say when, I don't mean W-H-E-N. I mean W-I-N, when. At the end of verse 18, Jesus says about the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. King Jesus makes a promise here. What Jesus is saying when you think about it, this is king language that's being used. This is only what a king could say and would say, and only what a king can promise and actually bring about. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's King Jesus' promise. It's his active guarantee. So that doesn't mean, you know, boots on the ground, that doesn't mean that a particular local church might not struggle and maybe would even close its doors. However, Jesus promises his big C church, the church of all believers, will prevail. So I want to draw our attention to a really important truth and implication about this. I know for me, for whatever reason, like for years, I just kind of brought my own assumptions to this text rather than letting God's word inform this text. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. 
and it's really important because sometimes it's like misunderstanding or misapplication. It really unconsciously or subconsciously impacts our, our view of what the church is and the mission of the church. So here's what I mean. In the context of the time and place in which Matthew 16 was written and the original audience first heard, when they hear the gates of hell will not prevail, what does that mean? So think about it. Gates back in that day, like gates to a city or later on like gates in a castle, that's a defensive mechanism, right? It's to protect that city. The purpose of a gate is to protect what's inside that city. So do you see kind of connecting the dots implications for Jesus' promise for the church here? Jesus' promise here to his church is that we're on offense. We're offensive. We're not cowering in defense. The gates of hell won't prevail. It's like, no, we're on offense. We're advancing the ball down the field. The gates of hell won't ultimately hold back or withstand or prevail or defeat Jesus' church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promises the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So again, let that like sit, like savor that for a minute. Do you see how important and how life-giving King Jesus' promise is here? Jesus' promise should fill his people with hope and with purpose. Those who worship King Jesus live on a mission there is a sentness to God's people that starts here in Matthew 16 with the church and then moves on through the New Testament into us today. We're on offense, okay? Did defense or offense win championships? Both. Here, we're on offense. So Gresham Bible Church, I'm going to boil this down real practically. Look down in front of you at your Bible. Do you see an inspired footnote on verse 18? Is there small print like on a medication here on on verse 18? Is there an expiration date on verse 18? The gates of hell won't prevail against his church, except in tough circumstances, except in a pandemic, except when the culture changes, except when your particular political party isn't in office except when you're in Portland, Oregon, and there's rioting, and it's really liberal, and this is just too tough for a church to flourish. That's the exception to verse 18. Is there a footnote? Do you see one? Is there an expiration date? No, there is no expiration date. There is no footnote. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus's church. And I'm going to kind of bring you into how this has been ministering to me. So, um, times are really hard right now for each of us individually, for God's church, even in our city, in and around Gresham, right? Ministry is difficult right now. Some people that have been in ministry for years saying this is the hardest that they've ever seen things, right? And there's a number of pastors who are leaving full-time vocational ministry because it's so hard. Seems like a great time for me to come on staff and associate pastor, doesn't it? Um, But what if... I want to apply Matthew 16, 18, right? Like, okay, what does this mean or what could it mean to us today? Okay, times are hard, but what if there is spiritual growth and revival ahead? Maybe it's over that hill right in front of us or maybe it's on a few hills down the path. Jesus' promise about his church is still true and he is still actively bringing his promise about. 
He just didn't passively say this in Matthew 18 and kind of stand back and say, I wonder how this is going to turn out. This is King Jesus, the author of history. He's bringing about his promise. Just in America's history, quick history lesson, there has often been spiritual renewal after upheaval, okay? After the Revolutionary War, after the Civil War, after World War II, after the craziness of the 60s. I wasn't alive, but I've read about it. So let's be praying it happens again after the upheaval of 2020 and whatever 2021 is going to bring or whatever the next century is going to bring. Let's be praying about this. And I really mean this. And I hope you do too. As we move into 2021, I pray for Gresham Bible Church. I pray that our knees hurt, honestly, from praying like this so often. We should be praying for the gospel to advance in us as a church in and through us to our neighbors and to the city around us. Be praying, be hoping for with Matthew 16, 18 in your mind. Be praying for renewal for you, for our church. Be praying for revival, that the gospel would really be seen and tasted how sweet that it is. Be praying for many more to come to Jesus this next year. Because again, King Jesus threw his churches on offense. Because the gospel is always on the advance. That's its nature. That's its DNA. And Jesus' promise is still true. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Jesus' promise is true for his global church because Jesus loves his church so much that he identifies with it as his own body. Remember quickly in Acts 9, right, where Saul comes to know Jesus, and then he becomes Paul. He's been persecuting the church a lot worse than maybe what you think 2020 has had, right? And what does Jesus say to him on that road? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus loves his church so much, he identifies with it. So that's why you can trust the promise of Matthew 16, 18, because the gates of hell will never prevail against our risen and reigning Lord. Now, let's not get it twisted. I don't want us to come away with the wrong posture from this. This promise in Matthew 16, 18 doesn't promote pride in the Christian or the church. It doesn't promote aloofness. It doesn't promote a disengagement from the world. The promise about his church is made by a king who went to the cross for the joy set before him. The promise is for a cruciform church to look like its savior king, like its suffering servant. So the disciples here who heard this originally in verse 18, what happened to all of them? How'd this play out for them? All of them except John were martyred for their faith. The early church in Acts experienced extreme persecution the church around the world in many parts today are experiencing extreme persecution still. So the church, just like its Savior, first experiences the cross and then the crown. So look at Peter here, who confesses who Jesus is right in our text in front of us. The one who clearly says, you are King Jesus. According to church history, maybe you're aware of this already, but according to church history, Peter was crucified upside down 
because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified right side up like his Savior King. So do you think, put yourself in Peter's shoes, he's made of the same stuff we are, do you think Peter had Matthew 16, 18 on his mind as he's being nailed upside down on a cross? As he died, was he clinging to the promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against his church? Someday maybe we can ask him. So Gresham Bible Church, this same Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote 1 Peter 4 verses 12 and 13, and he wrote this to God's exiled people. And as we close, I'm just going to read these verses for us, and we're wrapping up. So listen to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13, and as a backdrop, hold Matthew 16, 18 in your mind and hear these verses from 1 Peter, remembering who Peter is and this promise in Matthew. This is what Peter wrote, writing to an exiled people to God's church. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So in closing, as we've seen today from Matthew 16, between the first advent and the second advent, King Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it we have God's word on it. So let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word and for your people. We praise you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. We praise you that your word always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. I pray you will use what was shared today to strengthen your church. I pray for a response that is filled with confession repentance, trust, hope, peace, and joy today and throughout this week as we seek to know you more and make you known. Father, may we not shift from the sure hope of the gospel. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.